the biological sciences from the origin of how they arise is very different from the physical, uh, the chemical and the mathematical sciences. So they emerge as a result of what we call the history of philosophy, the natural history. So what we have was scholars describing organisms and the human body. And the, the discipline itself has had a lot of difficulties of splitting from its origin. That is a, 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 a descriptive discipline where a collection of descriptions and classifications is much more important than actually the rigor of the science. And over the last few years, they have been at stronger emphasis on incorporating models to make the science more rigorous. And what I want to do today is take you through the models in the way they have been developed. And every time I present a model, I'm going to tell you where are the strengths and where are the weaknesses. And the weaknesses they tend to be stronger across the board. Uh, so the, 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 the first thing is that life scientists, because they are descriptive by nature, they are historians, they use a lot of verbal and graphical models. And uh, this is a model that we have worked on my research group, that is the model of the unfolded protein response. So when we, you synthesize a lot of proteins, uh, you, you can have misfolded proteins that become toxic. And what you have on the top, so there are three receptors in there that actually they measure the amount of unfolded protein you have. But if you look at the chemical scheme that is represented in here, and, and this is what is very important, it's a linear scheme. Bioscientists, both in the medical sciences and even in evolution and ecology, they can only think in a linear way. They see an effect where A goes to B, and you can see the effect in there. So A goes to B and B goes to C. So if you have a large concentration of A, you know that in the long term you're going to get a large concentration of C. And that is a fundamental problem in the life sciences because models, they are rarely, so in life systems, they are rarely linear. And that's one of the fundamental problems. Every time you open a textbook and you see a model like this, and biologists, they call this a model, it's fundamentally limited because it only goes one way. So the other kind of models that life scientists they use, and this is a model that, in fact, when I got trained uh, as an experimental scientist, I use this cell line. So you can use cell lines to study biological phenomenon. Uh, and one of the most famous ones are called the HeLa cells. This is another one that is very famous, that's called the PC12 cells. Most of the cells, they have an, a, a cancer origin. And the reason they have a cancer origin is because cancer cell lines, they tend to reproduce forever. They're immortal, they're incredibly aggressive, and you can grow them in the laboratory under any conditions. In this case, so this specific cell line comes from, from, from a neuroendocrine tumor. And what scientists have discovered is that they, they are a very good model for neurons. So let me tell you what, how they work as a model for neurons. What they do is that they take the cells, they put them on suspension, on suspension, and then you can add chemical signals that tell to the cell that they have to differentiate. One of those chemical signals are called the neural growth factor. When you put it, that neural growth factor and you put them on a plate, suddenly they start to have a configuration that of like neuron type. They're not neurons because in reality, if you leave them on the plate for long enough, they keep reproducing. They still have the form and the shape of a neuron, 
but they would be reproduced and they wouldn't be ideal neurons. But what you can do with them is actually three or four things that are very interesting. The first one is that you can look at the electrophysiology recording, so the, the, the nerve impulse inside the cell, which is really, really exciting as a model. It's very difficult to do recording of neural cells. Generally, you have to do them on live tissue, and they live for a very short period of time. In this case, these cells will live for a very long time. But the other thing that you can do is actually observe molecules inside. Cells naturally are transparent. But what bioscientists they do is that they have fluorescent tags, they attach them to proteins, and then they observe them live. And a lot of, of very interesting research has been discovered as a result of that. But in my opinion, the research is very perverse. And let me explain you why. The difference between physics and biology when you're observing particles is that with physics, you use the laws of physics to follow one particle. You have a collision, and then you know how strong the, how strong the collision is. In biology, what we do is, for example, if you want to observe a protein, what you do is that you add either uh, in the gene of the protein a large section of the fluorescent tag molecule. Generally, the, uh, and this is an average number, if what the molecule weights one kilo, and I'm using here kilos, it's not the, the way they weight. The fluorescent tag molecule can weight between 10 to 100. So now imagine that you're making an observation of this molecule that you're really excited to see inside the cell. But is this the molecule that actually you are studying biologically, or is the fluorescent tag molecule that is 10 to 100 times larger than the molecule you're observing? So everything that we're learning inside the cells with this tissue models that are either in vivo or they could be in in vitro with the cell lines, they are pretty, pretty perverse. We consider models in biology, but in reality, I don't think they are. It's very difficult to understand the diffusion of a molecule when you have something attached to it that is hundreds of times bigger than the molecule itself. So that's some of the abuses that we observe in the life sciences. The other thing is that we have what we call animal models. And animal models are really, really exciting because what you do, and this is a typical example, their books are actually dedicated to animal models. And, and the three typical animal models in the life sciences are the, the, the mice or the rat, you have the drosophila, the fly, and then you have the, the C. elegans, which is the, the, the worm. And the way we select animal models is according to the disease of the phenomenon you, you want to study. It's all correlated to human beings. For example, if you have a specific disease that has a gene that has a mutation, what you do is that you identify the animal that has that gene with an organ that is homologous or analogous to the human organ. And then you insert the human gene into that animal and then you, with the same mutation that has a disease, and that immediately becomes the animal model. The issue is that if you are studying diabetes with a mice that has in the pancreas, it has two genes. The mice has two genes for insulin. One that is the, the human one that you inserted with the mutation, and then the one that is the mice one, together, in a mice. So is that a good animal representation of the human being when you study diabetes? And, and you know, but life scientists, they're always questioning that the whole time. And, and the reality is that many times, and this is part of the abuse that we have discovered, that many of the failures that happen on clinical trials are the result that we're using an animal model that is not the perfect representation of the reality of the human being. But there's something much more exciting about this. So animal models as well, 
they are the result of a phenotype. So you have the genes, and the genes, they need to be transformed into a phenotype. Uh, from the, gen the genotype goes to a phenotype that is expression of those genes. And there is a lot of variability in the phenotypes. For example, when you study the, C the PC12 cells, if you do the, the electro-recording of the cell in the morning, it's different than if you do it in the evening. Because cells are subject to circadian rhythms. The same thing happens with the whole animal. If you do the experiment in the morning, it's going to be slightly different than if you do it in the evening. But if you do it, for example, after the animal has been fed, or after the animal has been starving, it's very difficult as well to do the measurement. There's a lot of variability in the phenotype because the phenotype is a continuous dynamical model. And over the last 20, 30 years, we have been discovering that these animal models they are very, very complicated. They're a result of highly non-linearities that were unable to describe very well. But because biologists, they only think linearly, they tend to discard those issues. And there's an interesting phenomenon that was discovered in the 1990s. There is extreme expression of non-linearity on a typical animal model. That is the marmot crepes. In the marmot crepe, you can have, it's a part of an organic animal. It has exactly the same genetic phenotype. So it's the same animal. It doesn't change. Technically, the genotype and the, geno the phenotype has to be identical. But if you grow them on the same pool with the same genetic component, you can see substantial difference between the animals. And the reason is because these are what we call a non-linear dynamical phenomenon, where small differences on the experimental conditions can trigger big difference. The chemical reactions inside the cells, they're not A goes to B goes to C. The way they are is that A goes to B, but B inhibits A. And B can actually then start to, to self-catalyze itself and activate C. And C is going to be an activator of A. When you think that way, which is what the physical reality is, it's very difficult to use then the linear models. And that's why when we decide then to start to use what they call computational mathematical models, we believe that they, can, that they can be provided a better way of doing things. And I'm going to take you through five cases of how the models are used. There are models that we call reminiscence models. These are, you know, like, it's a powerful tool. They work pretty well if the system is well characterized and you know how every component works, which is far away from the reality. And very few mathematical models, they, they love to do this. And the reason is because if the mechanism is not fully characterized, it's a little bit like the art of this toy making, where you can have the monkey playing with the chimbles. And it's this monkey that is made of tin, but if you look inside the monkey, it doesn't have muscles, and it doesn't have a brain but it still imitates the movement of the monkey so well that the child is convinced that you have a monkey playing the, the chimples. It's like Hollywood movie making. And, and you know, my research group, uh, we have collaborated with people who do this, and this is one of the, the perfect examples. You have, uh, there is a tool that is called the cellular pods model. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a software tool that has millions of lines, of code lines, of computer lines, that can create a simulation. But they create a simulation that is so complex that you don't have a full mechanistic understanding of what can happen. What you do is that you do models that are perfect imitations. And we did a model here for studying birth defects during the backbone. And those blocks in there, that's the formation of the vertebra. 
But, but again, can this model be helpful in practical terms? We don't know the mechanism because there are a million lines of computer code that tell you how it works. It's like making you know, special effects in Hollywood. So experimentalists, they love them because they imitate very well what they're looking for. Theoreticians, they hate them because you cannot get insights from them. So now, the second case is what I call exploratory modeling with statistics and data analysis. There's a lot of ideas that people have about how statistics should be used now. Machine learning is the latest thing, but there's only one way that you can use a statistical modeling in the life sciences that is effective. And, 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 and I'm going to give you a perfect example here. So in my research group, so with Dev Gomosio, so there's a paper from, from the group, we start to study how the V-Light is patterning. So, and if you don't know what the villa is, when you're forming the, the intestine, you will have a lot of dots there in the, in the intestine. Each one of those dots is a finger-like protrusion that actually what it does is that it, it absorbs the food that you are eating and goes into the intestine. And, and people were convinced for a number of years that the patterning of those villi, there was random. And you know, Dave and I, we decided to do, let's just test it. And you test it with a statistical analysis. So and this is the way the villi would look like. So inside your intestine, of course, if you have an electron microscopy. And you know, we discovered that there was a signal that you could break down. So there is a, a chemical signal, it's called HH, that actually, if you break it down, you can have villi in one side, in here, the wild type. And if you, don't, if you have the mutant, you don't have the villi that inform. And then what we did is that we started to play with the villi for, formation to see if we can change the patterning. And you know, these are the typical experiments. I'm not going to go through the details here. It's like, like foreign language to you. You just take it as a foreign uh, 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 citation. But what we did is that we actually took the intestine, opened it flat, and started to measure the distance between the villi. And there is, a, a, there is a statistical tool that is called point pattern analysis that allows to determine whether there was a pattern or no into the system. And we, we end up concluding after doing the calculations that we, with a statistical certainty, could reach that the villi is patterned, but we don't know how. So now this is the second phase. So when you use exploratory modeling, you identify a hypothesis that you want to work on. And now you need to build the hypothesis, which is the next stage. So it's case three. So now you use what we call phenomenological modeling for doing exploratory science. So you come with a model that has an explanation. And it's an explanation that is not from first principles, but it gives a very good description of the phenomenon. And you use mathematics to test it. So and here, again, is Deb and myself. So we did uh, this work that was very exciting about how the, the, the villi is, is formed in the intestine. And, and, and you know, we look at not only hedgehogs, but we look at another signal that is called B BMP, a series of modifiers of BMP, that when you vary their concentrations, you can change the patterning of, of the intestine. And it can go from having dots, even from having stripes, like the leopard and, 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 so, and the zebra, that you can have the leopard patterning and the spike patterning. And what we observed that we got very curious. So that phenomenon of the leopard spots and the zebra patterning is, is actually described mathematically with a theory developed by Alan Turing. And we play even with it further by, by adding inhibitors because Turing believes that there is an activator and inhibitor. So we play with inhibitors of the BMP signaling and we're able as well to alter the pa patterning. 
And that's what triggered the idea that maybe what we have is this phenomenological model developed by Alan Turing that is called the chemical basis of morphogenesis. It's a very beautiful model. The way that is best described, so I'm going to show you here mathematically what it looks like, you have an activator and then you have an inhibitor. And, and, and then they have a mathematical formula. This is a cell density population. You see how the cells, they grow. And you have a formula on how the chemistry works. The chemistry is pretty straightforward. Imagine that you are in the flat lines, uh, flatlands of Venezuela. So you have a lot of dry grass. And then Jimmy the cricket, the cricket is living there with his family in, in, in the flatlands. Suddenly fire comes in. The fire is the activator. More fire activates more fire and the grassland starts to be burned. But Jimmy the cricket is there and a family member is in the other corner and another one is in there. And they're scared to death that the fire is coming in. And they're so scared that they start to sweat. And they sweat so much that the grass surrounding them is completely wet to the point that inhibits the fire. And once the fire crosses by, you have black dust except in the areas where Jimmy the Cricket were living. That's the way Alan Turing envisioned the pattern information. If the crickets were all hogging with each other, you would have stripes. You will form the zebra. But if Jimmy the Cricket was dispersed, you will have spots. And what I decided to do was testing the hypothesis of whether we could play with the mathematical formulation to make the predictions if the Turing pattern would exist. And what you can do is that you can play with the balance of activator and inhibitor with a mathematical model and see if they match the ones of the experiments. And that's all we did. So we started on the top, we have the mathematical model simulations. On the bottom, we have the experiments. And then we have the perturbations that we make, the predictions that if we add a bit that increases the activator, we change the patterning. If we have a bit that increases inhibitor and we put the bit with inhibitor in there, we change the, the way the patterning it would be done. And you know, the fitting that we observe, and the fitting is here on the size, it's almost perfect. So between the patterning that we were the, predicting with the mathematical mold and the patterning that actually was observed by doing the perturbations with the mold. So this is the, 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 the overall conclusion that we have from the, from the, from the system is that we believe that actually the alien Turing model of pattern formation applies to the villi. The problem is that it's not a model of first principles because we cannot, we don't know chemically who is the activator or the inhibitor exactly. We know that they're modifiers of a family of molecules. We don't know how they're interacting in the tissue. We don't know what cell is expressing those. And that's why the model is phenomenological. But what we're doing is that from going to the statistics, which is the exploratory modeling, to go to the phenomenological modeling, we are closing down the gap where we can get to first principles. And unfortunately, Deb retired, and you know, I couldn't continue working on this to discover the first principles with her. So now, uh, let me just give you another example where now we look at first principles, so which is mechanistic modeling for hypothesis testing. And, and in this case, I'm working with a, with a colleague so who, re, in fact, we managed to recruit at Notre Dame. He's a, a world-recognized expert on, on, on cell migration. So when you form the, 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 the backbone, so you're closing then the, the spine, and you have the brain and the spine, cells they migrate from the spine around the body to form the arms, and they form as well the nerves that go around the arms and the legs. So during that migration, you have a phenomenon that is very beautiful, that is called 
follow the leader behavior. You have a change-like behavior where cells are migrating groups together. Uh, and you know, nobody understood how this phenomenon works. And Paul was the person who discovered this phenomenon, Paul Kulisa. And he sat down with me and he told me, I need your help to figure out the mechanism on how they work. And why he was asking me for, for the help. So he wanted me to say, well, how this neural crest migrates as a team of five to 12 cells together. And the reason he wanted to contact me is because he had three hypotheses. He had what he called the extra, extra, extracellular matrix model, where he claimed that the one cell migrates first and opens a path, and then the rest of the cell follows through the path. That's hypothesis one. The other one is that he has a second hypothesis where you have a leader cell that goes in front, then goes to the back, pulls another one, and brings it forward. And then it, they keep doing this on a change-like. And then he had another hypothesis that would be a combination of all those. If Paul decides to do the experiments, to take those three hypotheses, it would take them easily 15 to 20 years to figure out each one of those. What the experimentalists they do is that they come with a theoretician that tells them, can you help me to figure out which of these they are? And the way it's done is that you have the experiments that give you the preliminary evidence, and then you have different models that you put in the computer. And you figure out if the computer, when you do the mathematical or computational model, can make predictions that can be validated experimentally. With one single experiment, you can have the experiment that tells you hypothesis one is not valid, it's not extracellular matrix, or hypothesis two, that is contact, is not valid, you discard the, the one, and then maybe you end up with a third one, that is the, the alternative hypothesis. <coughs> How do you build this model so, and how do you test them? It's with a fundamental loop where experiments give you the data analysis, you build the theory, the mathematical model, and then you test and go back and forth. And for most of the experimental systems, biology, because it's not quantitative, the way this is done is with a conversation. And agent-based models, like the lattice gas automatons that we discussed yesterday, you can describe these rules computationally in a very easy way. And the way it would happen is that the experimentalists would tell you, well, this is the way they work. The neural crest cell uh, uh, contact via philopodia. The philopodia is the arm that they would extend uh, uh, and alter the trajectory of the trailing cell, the one that actually is being touched by the philopodia. And then the theoretician would keep asking more and more questions. And what you do is that you represent the, the verbal model into computational terms, into rules that are computational. And you know, here what we did is that we mold as composite agents, and each agent was following the rules of the game described by the experimentalists. So you have the, the, here the, the, the leader cells that extend the philopodia, and the followers that only extend a couple to attach with each other. And you, you construct this in, in, in as much detail as possible so that you can have an idea of the mechanism. You know, Paul and I, we sat down systematically, we built what we call the experimental observations, the assumptions, which are all the hypotheses that you have, and then the parameters, the, things that, the few things that you can measure that allow you the mold to be dynamic. And interesting, we discovered after doing that, four things. So the first one is that the leader, in only to have a, 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 this moving or following the change migration, needed to be biased. It needed to be moved towards one direction. If it was moving anywhere, the change-like behavior wouldn't happen. 
The second one is that the followers would only move if the leader actually opened the path first. You need to have somebody cleaning the extracellular matrix with a gelatin where the cells live, so that it would be a, a path of less resistance. The third one is that uh, you, know, you have that preference that was important. But the final one is that contact was fundamental. If you have the leader not making con contact, contact with the followers, the followers would always get lost. You know, it's a perfect analogy of how leadership should, perfect leadership should be. Leaders should come back and, and you know, serve as role models, and people should follow in them. That's why I haven't stopped doing any science. I have learned from the cells. Uh, and you know, we propose the mechanistic model, and then what Paul did later on is that he systematically started to do specific experiments that would test each one of these findings, the directional bias. So he find out what was the chemical component was targeting the, the, the directional bias. He would change it, and then the cell would change migration. He discovered what was the, the protein that actually allows the cells to contact with each other. He broke down that protein. The contact wouldn't happen. The cells wouldn't follow the pattern. And by doing that, he concluded that the third hypothesis, which was a combination of the open the path plus the contact, was the critical one for the mechanism. So that's one way that you do models. So now let me just go for the fifth scenario. Uh, and you know, this is my expertise. So my expertise in, in the life sciences, I'm a measurement scientist. I'm obsessive compulsive when it comes into numbers and standardization. Uh, and I have dedicated my, my career for, for doing this because you know, I think it's very important. And I'm going to show you how important it is and how that is currently being done. So in vitro essays, so before we have a descriptive uh, uh, biological sciences, so, you know, early on in the, in, the, in, in, the, in, in the previous century, we have a few scientists who are coming from physics that actually they start the revolution of biophysics and molecular biology. And they decided systematically to build very uh, first principle models on how things would operate in the life sciences. And one of the things that was developed at the time was the Michaelis mentioned enzyme essay on how to measure the affinity between an enzyme and a software to catalyze a reaction. Human and living beings wouldn't be able to exist if we wouldn't have enzymes because reactions are accelerated in the time scale that we are alive thanks to enzymes. So and to do that, what you do is that you put the enzyme and the software into, into a test tube, you add buffer so that they, they find an environment similar to the one that you have in, in, inside the cells. You fix the temperature, and then you let the reaction run. And you measure the reaction by seeing how the concentrations, they change as time is progressing. And the way you do the modeling is in, in two ways. You do what is called the forward modeling, where you take the chemical reaction from first principles, and then you simplify the complexity of the mathematical equations that tend to be highly nonlinear into a single equation where you can do measurements. And you will use then that equation for actually doing the inverse modeling. Can I map back from the equation the original parameters that drive the reaction? The forward modeling is a, is a piece of cake. Mathematicians have been developing this for centuries. It's called mathematical analysis, simplification, and scaling. And you know, I, I have become very well known because I use a forward modeling for actually deriving a, a, a mathematical equation that now I'm pretty embarrassed. So that equation in there, it has my name, so and, and the name of my collaborator. So it's a, it's a textbook equation on how you can actually follow 
the, the software depletion or the product formation in an enzyme catalyzed reaction. Uh, uh, the simplest ones, and even the more complicated ones. But the, the inverse problem is incredibly difficult. So we have done a lot of research on how to do the reverse modeling by using statistical analysis on how the equation should be employed experimentally to obtain the better measurements. And the problem is that the mapping between the forward and the inverse problem is incredibly complex uh, mathematically and philosophically for the following reason. The inverse problem is, is a problem of the shadows, of the platonic shadows. So if I ask you here, so what is the reflection of this, this thing? Everyone here would tell me, well, that's a hand, Santiago. That's a complete joke. So how you're putting this problem that is so easy? But if I hide what is there, you will find you know, <laughs> this animal in here that is trying to trick you. The inverse modeling problem, because you're playing the issue of the shadows on the cave, is incredibly difficult to find a perfect mapping. And a lot of the measurements that we try to do in the life sciences, they tend to fail because the instrument is giving you this shadow that you are measuring that doesn't represent very well the reality of the system that you are trying to study. And to give you an idea of the level of the crisis that we are in the life sciences, I'm going to give you here you know, a pretty straightforward example. This is the measurement. So enzymes, they, they are classified by numbers. So one, 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 one is the first enzyme in the classification system. They go until, uh, so they go by six categories, and they have three numbers each one of them. So there's an enzyme that's called 66630. So we, we have classified in that way so that objectively they are in groups and people know what they are. This is the reported data. When you do a meta-analysis of you go to a database, in this case we, we have gone to a, a database that's called Brenda. Brenda has all the physical constants of enzyme catalyst reactions have been measured in the literature. And this is the values reported for the enzyme 111 with the substrate in human under identical experimental conditions. Identical, I'm saying here. And what you have on the bottom is order of magnitudes. It's the logarithm of the KM, which is a Michaelis-Menten constant. It's a constant that actually measures the affinity. When I show this number to biologists, they are not scandalized. But now let me tell you an idea of how scandalous this variation is. Imagine that I now I want to take an Uber, or I ask my GPS to take me from here to the hotel, so in, in Casa Santa Lucia. And the GPS then commits a mistake, and a mistake that goes from here to there. That mistake, and you know, we are in the top of the distribution, the GPS, is taking, instead of taking me to Santa Lucia, is taking me to Frankfurt. So, you know, it's a significant error that is being committed. So now if you move the error to the next round, it goes twice around the Earth. And if we keep going, it goes air to Mars. And if we keep going to the extreme, and those are the, the rare cases, but there are still people reporting a case in one extreme to the other one, to Jupiter. So that's the state of the art on how we are measuring the physical constants in the simplest experiment that you can have in the life sciences. An enzyme and a substrate in a test tube. So what is telling you this is that there is something which is much more fundamentally flawed in the way we're using models, not only for doing the descriptions in the life sciences, but for doing the measurements that are so critical 
And the physicists and the chemists, they're not failing into doing that. And one is that, you know, we don't know how to report data yet and experiments in the life sciences. To give you an example, we decided to investigate what are the causes of this variability. Typical causes, so after looking at 3,840 papers from the top journals, science, nature, cell. So to give you an example, 63% of the papers, they don't tell you what enzyme concentration they use for doing the experiment. So the enzyme is the, cata is the catalyst, is the, is, the, is, the, is the individual that actually is running the race and pushing the software to be transformed. So for example, they don't report 20% of the papers, don't report units, what units they use. So they measure in molar, micromolar, phantomolar. Or for example, there is something that I like. So people report that they did the experiment on room temperature. So room temperature here, right now, is fantastic. Go to South Bend uh, in Notre Dame. It's not a fantastic room temperature these days. So, so or for example, they don't report pH. So that's the state of the art. And the problem that we have in the life sciences is that when you ask a biomedical scientist, report me the data with some standards, they tell you, I have my academic freedom. <laughs> and I have the right to express myself and do the experiments in any way I want. So what, what is happening in the life sciences is that the crisis is essentially saying, I only trust my data and the data of my lab. And potentially, potentially there might be some reproducibility in the experimental data of my laboratory. But I cannot guarantee anybody else because biology appeared in the 1960s, molecular and biology and the current biology, you know, civil revolution, uh, uh, the CTR theory, and you know, and people having their academic fields doing whatever they want. So that's one of my strong opinions about the experimentalists. I don't have a high opinion of many of them. So, and this is the case that I'm, I want to make for philosophy of science with scientists and philosophers working together. So it's not only the issue of standardization, there is something even much more deeply. So you probably have seen, so there is a lot of meta-analysis in the life science that show that many of the research fundings are false. And these are research fundings that are not with measurements, that they should be precise. These are research findings of somebody reporting, if you add this specific drug target, into a cell, in a cancer cell, you should be killing the cell. And we know that two-thirds of those reports, they're false. And they're false not maybe because they have bad intentions. It's that there's something fundamentally flawed on what from one laboratory to the other one means killing a cancer cell or changing the expression of the cell. So that's one of my hypotheses. John Ioannidis, who is a good friend of mine, he believes that everything boils down to statistics. That actually is an issue that we are not measuring sufficiently well with large samples so that we can have a statistical significant number of value. But the reality is that he, he, when you do that, he's not taking into account the complex nonlinearities of biological system. That is not the same thing measuring the effect of a drug target in the cancer cell in the morning than in the evening, because cells they live thanks to circadian rhythms as well to give you an example, or the experimental conditions. If the cell is in one corner of the, of the test tube and not in the other one, the chemical environment is sufficiently small that non-linearities would get triggered. And the other thing that as well I think is important to have the, the, the collaboration is that, you know, this recent paper that I just published a few weeks ago, that papers and patents are becoming less and less disruptive over time. 
biomedical scientists, life scientists, so they are become less innovative because they are not being challenged this day by anybody. So if you look at the innovation in the 1940s, and you keep going before, the innovation was pretty high. And what you have in common in those days is that the idea of the university was that you will have scientists in this room, as many as philosophers, talking about fundamental problems on what is the future both of science and philosophy and how we could be working together to resolve a problem. Instead of becoming problem-based and question-based, academia has become discipline-based. And what you do with disciplines, that, you know, the way I always describe this is that if, if you have a, you know, let me see, I have this. So if you have an object, so and this is a topological problem, if you have an object, the, 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 the historian might look the object from this point of view. I would say, oh, it's a circle. But in the moment you have, for example, an engineer, you would look at it like this. And then, oh, it looks like it's probably more a cylinder. But then if you look at it from this distance, then somebody else would, which could be another discipline. Anthropologists, they would look at differently. And then if you have the biologists, they would look only at the cap. The only way that we can actually observe very well the physical objects that we are trying to study is by having universities operating as a, as a question-based, problem-based. So where you have different disciplines, what we call disciplines, actually trying to understand the objectivity of what the reality of the object is and how our sciences are giving you a model from a different perspective of what the object is being realized. And I think that the, the lack of innovation in science and engineering is the result that we have become an echo chamber of ourselves. And we haven't had a philosopher who actually questioned you. Are you sure that what you know by differentiation is truly differentiation? What's your definition of a differentiated cell? Or what is your definition of a phenotype? Or what is your definition of this object that you are trying to measure? And how the measurement is being carried? Uh, and the perfect example of this, and, and you know, measurement is probably what in my opinion, is going to be changing the life sciences, is that if we want to have produce better science, so useful models produce better science, what drives better models? The example comes from physics. We have these three characters that actually, together, they make physics much better. The first one, so he was an, a data scientist in today's term. He actually was measuring the distance between the Earth and the sun and how that distance was happening. He couldn't have an explanation of what it would, it, it would occur. But then Kepler took the data that was measured with a lot of precision and was able to figure out that the, the, the planets were moving with this elliptic uh, 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 trajectory. And put a mathematical, uh, he put the foundation for the mathematical model that then Isaac Newton put together at the end. The way physics predicted why we can launch a rocket and put it on the moon or in another planet is because we had better measurements that allow you to build better models that could be predictive. We don't have that in the life sciences. We don't have them at all. And the reason is because you know, the, the simplest experiment, which is measuring the affinity between an enzyme and a substrate, you can go from here to Jupiter, according to the laboratory you're talking on. So, but, uh, uh, and you know, 
if we cannot rely on measuring something, so it's hard to build a theory. So that's the, the take on messaging here. But if you look physics, quantity, such position, mass, and time, they're relatively easy to measure, at least if you are within one scale of, 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 of the level of organization. However, in other fields I have worked, and I have not only worked on, on the life sciences, but if you look at psychology or, 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 or psychiatry, if you look at the social scientists, there are perfect examples here. So in life sciences, how do we measure binding? Binding is not, is not a measurement of first principles. It's a measurement of an essay that is, 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 is very soft, softly made, where you don't know what the physical forces are represented in that constant. What you know is that they're interacting together. And the constant is encompassing many things that are happening in there. You have residence time, differentiation, phenotype. These are words that biologists, they don't know what they mean, species. We don't know what the species means. So it's a static concept, it's a dynamic concept. Psychologists, they measure emotion, identities, beliefs. So how you can do that objectively, you want to have a good theory. So biomedical scientists, they, they tend to measure the treatments of outcomes in a small and heterogeneous populations. Can we do that? Is that a good model for representing treatments? Social scientists are attempting to measure inequality, polarization, or disinformation. What are those concepts? So do we have philosophical foundations of what those they, they mean? Are we working together with the scientists on those disciplines to figure out those things? Well, if we don't do that, so I don't think we're going to be making any progress in the sciences. And you know what I'm doing here is you're not only inviting the philosophers to work more closely with the scientists, but hopefully we can have you know, scientists working more closely with philosophers and they're able to be challenged and being asked the hard questions. Thank you.